Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. This week, Andy Fisher discusses being a teacher, why he loves it, and how his pursuit of his passions relates to the classroom. He shares his unique and unexpected movement journey before explaining how all of that relates to the passion projects he regularly pursues, such as the Throne In and Hero Forge projects. Andy discusses his thoughts on efficacy, his current struggles, and how he manages and works towards overcoming them. But before we begin, I'd like to ask, have you noticed there are little Easter eggs at the very end of each episode? Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Hi, I'm Andy Fisher. Andy Fisher is a teacher, photographer, author, husband, and father, among many other things. A man of many talents, Andy is also an obstacle course racer, a wilderness survival instructor, and has been a longtime teacher of practical self-protection skills. In addition to survival and protection, Andy also teaches English at his secondary school in Norwich and finds that to be the most dangerous job he's yet experienced. Welcome, Andy. (laughs) Thanks. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Andy, let's dive right in and talk a little bit about um, secondary education. So in the States, we would call it high school or middle school, maybe. And then you're teaching English in secondary. So can you just unpack a little bit, like what exactly is in that subject and, yeah. and where do you teach? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm based on the East Coast of the UK, uh, kind of middle of the country where it bulges out. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of sleepy little city, really. I've taught there for 22 years with a couple of little breaks, which we can come to maybe later in the conversation. I hope so. <laughs> um, so I teach 11 to 18 year old children, uh, boys and girls, and uh, it's a combination of English language skills. So grammar, punctuation, spelling mm-hmm. and literature. Okay. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a job that I, I love doing. But it's also very frustrating as well because, and we can get into this about. I was going to say, do you? So I, I, I can barely remember <laughs> English class when I was in high school. That was a couple of days ago. But do does the curriculum that you're working in? Do they how, like how, what level do they dictate? Do they give you? You have to teach. I'm assuming there's a test. You have to m- yeah. make to the test. But do they also give you a lot of latitude on, you know, a if you can manage to turn on the spark of love of literature, that'd be great. But or like, how do they manage that? Sure. So. I'm really lucky in that school I teach in, it does give me that latitude. I've got a really good head of department who I work with. Essentially, it's a really busy school and they're very results driven. Mm-hmm. Um, they're expected to get first place university choices. They're, uh, they're bright kids and they're motivated. So it's not a behavioral issue that I have to manage on a daily basis. A lot of teachers in other schools, their primary purpose is to keep the kids in the room mm. and not running up the walls. I, I, that's not my problem. <laughs> my, my problem is I've got very bright, engaged children who want to do well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm forever trying to steer them towards those more autotelic Better goals. Target, right. Yeah. Fe- feeling the passion for the literature and the skills take care of themselves. Um, and I'm blessed to do that. I think in part that's because I get the results. So they kind of ignore how I get there. Um, <laughs> And, and in part because it's so busy, no one's really looking at what I'm doing. So I push the envelope on what I can get away with with them. Yeah. I first discovered, um, I think the first place that I heard mention of you was when Dan Edwards was talking about the, it's thrown in, like yeah. as in Ronin. So thrown in when you, when you did the, what, what I'm going to say, although I totally understand, I'm going to say is a ridiculous attempt at like throwing for a thousand days and trying to actually get world, world ranked. Yeah. So th- this strikes me as a very disparate, like world-class, <laughs> and I'm not trying to draw like a funny line with like throwing knives at the kids, but like there's a huge discretion, the difference between knife throwing at the world-class level, which is, I have to imagine, deeply, deeply, um, you have to really be committed, mm. uh, and teach 
teaching English literature. So I happen to know, but can you unpack a little bit? Like some of the other things you do outside, like knife throwing is not yeah. really that off the path for you. No, yeah, I've, I've always had the attitude, and it does tie in with education. I've always had the attitude that teachers have a responsibility to be outside of their comfort zone and learning. Mm. Because if, you, if you're just teaching to your skill set, you can lose touch with what a learner's experience is like. Uh, and also I think, you know, the, the, we've got one wild life. We want to throw ourselves mm -hmm. in and expose ourselves to as much as possible. So all the way alongside my teaching career, I've been pursuing other passion projects of various kinds. And I tend to bring those things into school as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, as you said in the intro, I've, I've got a qualification as a wilderness survival instructor. I've been a close protection officer and I teach self-defense. And I had this sort of, yeah, this weird thousand day challenge to <laughs> become a world-class knife thrower. And the, the way that they almost inevitably end up coming into the classroom in some way. So I've, I've taken kids out into the woods on long weekends and, you know, taken away all their gear and taught right. them how to survive. Right. I've, um, taken groups and padded them up and basically given, <laughs> beaten the hell out of them. It's an, it's a nice way of resolving interpersonal issues with the students you teach. Um, <laughs> with no legal ramifications. Um, and yeah, with the knife throwing, I, I haven't taught them to throw knives because of yeah the, 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 okay maybe we draw the line at this thing than that yeah the school's insurance policies don't stretch quite that far but it's it's really interesting that the one of the things that that project brought out for me was how do you become really good at something in a limited time frame did you want to bring that concept into the classroom yeah that, exactly because okay. i don't want to interrupt your, your story about how you became really good and then i also want to get to the part how the story ends that's also really interesting sure um, but i was just wondering like did did do they talk about it like are they like following you so like like they're lurking like oh how did you do with this tournament like, yeah yeah they really actually got into it in a big way and i had a youtube channel that tracked what i was doing mm -hmm. and the kids would follow that and uh, it's, again it has to be a one-way relationship because for safety reasons and safeguarding right. the kids can follow me if they want but i can't follow, follow them. them so i didn't engage online uh in in terms of what that project was like but in the classroom they'd often come in and say oh have you got a competition this weekend sir and yeah what happened over there yeah or, and how did it go and why I, did I'd, you say this exactly and and so i'd, I'd use that to talk about you know what is it that you're passionate about and what would it take to get really good mm. and you know we looked at the the mythology of the 10,000 hour rule and all of those things. And because kids are what they should be thinking about is that they're basically professional learners. And yet so little of the curriculum is invested in learning how to learn. Mm. So I try and make it kind of a metacognitive thing where, where the successes and failures of any of these projects that I get involved in, I bring back into the classroom. And it also means that they're engaging with me beyond the idea of being an authority figure that teaches them a subject. I'm a human being with interests and passions beyond the classroom. Right. And I think there's something uh, I have limited, very limited teaching experience as a teaching assistant at the collegiate level. And I, I didn't realize this at the time, but I think the mistakes that I, one of the big mistakes I made was that I felt that it was one way and the professor, you know, lecture hall of 300, that's pretty much one way. They're just going to deliver the material. Yeah. But I think the mistake that I didn't realize, and I'm, the more I'm listening, I'm like, oh yes, that's a mistake, is that it really needs to be a two-way communication. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's definitely going to be lopsided on one direction, but I think that that feedback or that ability for them to feel that they are actually being heard um, seems like a critical component. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's about authenticity as well. So uh, a long time ago, I realized, so I, I went down something called the pastoral route in teaching, which is I teach my subject, but I also, my career development has not been towards becoming a headmaster or a head of department. Okay. It's been about 
being responsible for the pastoral care of the pupils I teach. So for seven years, I was a housemaster. So I had 116 kids who I was responsible for. And if there was a bereavement or a divorce or a significant illness, I was the front line of call for that family and for that child. And you don't have authentic connection unless you come authentically yourself. And a good example of that is that during the last sort of four or five years, so my father had a uh, a very rapid onset of cancer and he mm-hmm. died. And rather than hide that from the kids, I bought that into my conversation in the room with them. So we talked about death and we talked about bereavement and we, because when you're teaching literature, those themes come up They're all the in time. There, right? Yeah. And so you can either pretend that you are not a human being going through what you're going through, or you can take the risk of saying, this is where I'm at. And this is what mm-hmm. I, you know, and guys, if I'm struggling a bit at the moment, this is why. And what was remarkable about that was the degree of compassion that they brought to that relationship. You know, I, I, I'll always stand by the idea that I've learned more from my kids than I've taught them. And, and any decent teacher, I think that's the case because these young people are remarkable in terms of their integrity and their openness and their willingness to, to yeah, embrace change. Like there's so much difference. Yeah. And it's, and it's really easy to adopt this idea of I'm older, I'm the teacher, they're the child, they don't know anything. And my God, when you get into their, their worlds and the things they've gone through, you know, it's, it's really humbling that they're able to turn up some of these guys and, and be in the classroom at all. Right. So so in that sense, yeah, it's been it's been a it's a, a career that's a privilege. Then the challenge of this uh, of teaching these days is all of the politics and the hoop jumping that you need to do in order to um, get the grades that they're required to have. And right. but I but I think of my teaching as my subject matter is a clothes horse upon which I hang the important stuff, mm. which is having an authentic connection with these young people and becoming. To, a role model in the truest sense in that not, not a model of how to get it right, but a model of what you do when you get it wrong as well, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah, I love it. It's a great job. If we skip quickly through there, we mentioned the knife throwing, the thrown in project. And I kind of want to circle back to that but before we go there. I want to just paint a little bit more of a picture of like where you are in the total activity movement space. So yep. people can, now that they're like, okay, this guy's interesting. Yes, he really is. Check this out. So I know that you, <laughs> the, where I first bumped into your name was actually in the thrown in project because I was following things Dan was talking about. Mm-hmm. But I think most people would have heard your voice on the Hero Forge podcast. And by the way, mad props, kudos. That was a really great, I loved the project. And I, I'm going to be a little, when you started it, I was like, oh, this is going to be great, but you're going to burn out. I could just, I was like, <laughs> I just saw it coming. I'm like, as having done this, I'm like, oh. And I was just so excited to see that you went the whole arc of a whole year and that it didn't just like burn and blow up. That it was So I really applaud you for really going all in, which now I see, oh, I see why you do that. Having gone all in on that and having had the opportunity to go talk to all those really amazing people. And it's really, I thought it was um, exceptional that you, I don't want to to sound critical, but that you managed to get to so many really well-positioned and famous and well-spoken people in such a short time, like normally. And and the reason I know that you managed to do that is because you've done a lot of other things. So the Hero Forge podcast is really like the last of a series of cool things. So you also did the thrown in podcast, which was the podcast about the knife throwing. And you also wrote the hero forge book and you've done a lot of presentations at obviously the hero, the round tables. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about how you got into wilderness survival and like, where did that, where did that whole uh, EDC and and where did that grow out of? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it probably makes sense for me to do a kind of a timeline. Sure. And, and, and given that 
that we're placing an emphasis upon movement. I'll try and show the kind of through line of movement in sure. all of this. Thank you. So uh, I was a really badly asthmatic child. I spent a lot of time off school with a significant illness, and um, it was always assumed that I'd be one of these reasonably bright but sickly kids who mm. didn't really do very much. And my father was a soldier, so we traveled around a lot, and uh, my education was suffering. So at the age of 11, I was sent to a boarding school in the UK whilst he was stationed out in, in Germany. Every morning at seven o'clock, an alarm bell was rung and all of the kids got up and we had to do a two and a half mile run. So like, I don't know, 4K, 5K. And before breakfast, every morning I was the last to come through, mm. wheezing and coughing. And by the time I showered up, all of the breakfast had gone. gone. And there was just a certain point where I just thought, enough, I'm not going to have this define my life. And so every afternoon, I then go out on another run. And that was the beginning of my introduction to physical culture. I made the decision that I wasn't going to be defined by my condition and that well, I could grow. That, okay. So self-efficacy out of the gate, how the, that's a huge thing for you to realize that, oh, no, I screw this. I'm taking over. Yeah, where, yeah. where do you know where that spark came from or just, no I, I think, I think maybe to an extent the role model of my father, because mm -hmm. he was somebody who just seemed larger than life and didn't quit on anything. But I, I think some of it was probably innate, but more than anything else, it was, it was anger and mm. frustration. I think, I think I was an angry kid. I had a lot of, a lot of that and I converted it into proactive, yeah, proactive rather advance. than whining and complaining about the world. Yeah. So I interrupted you. So sure. afternoon running. <laughs> so, so, so that then led me to uh, starting to be able to get a handle on my, my condition without needing so much medication. That led me to first 15 rugby team and athletics. And I, I competed at county level. And so I started to get some sort of standing within my peer group and mm. I was capable physically. The other thing that was happening parallel to this was that at uh, the age of 10, hmm. my mum was a dinner lady at the uh, local school. This is before I right, went right. to boarding school. And anyone who said anything about my mother insulting her, I would, it didn't matter how tall they were, how big they were, I'd step up. And every time I would get beaten down because <laughs> I was a small kid with a big mouth and no skills. You are not a small kid anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still short, but uh, a bit broader. Um, and so my father sent me to a martial arts class and I'd thought at the time it was because he was trying to skill me up to be able to defend my family's honor. And in reality, what he was hoping is a little bit of self-discipline would rub off and I wouldn't get into so many fights. <laughs> um, and that became uh, a journey that's ongoing now. I studied various forms of martial arts and uh, that continued in boarding school. I, I studied karate on the weekends. And um, so I had these sort of, uh, these two things going on. I had my, my battle with cancer, uh, with, um, uh, I say that because that's going to come up right. later. That's asthma. Like asthma. Um, and uh, I also had this, this evolving passion for the martial arts. I fell in love with Bruce Lee and his represent everything that he represented yeah. about breaking outside of cultural norms. Um, so that's my schooling. I carried it on through university. I've, I ended up at a point where I had a degree. I was working in advertising. I was hating what I was doing. Uh, I just didn't fit that mold. Mm. And then I placed an, an advert for a, a client which said wanted circus performers. Uh, and I phoned up to get copy for this advert and there was a cross conversation. This guy thought I was applying for a job. Right. So he said, well, what do you do? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you know, uh, can what's, you, what's your special power? Yeah. yeah. Right? Can you dance? And I was like, sure, I can dance. And 
<laughs> I, I, oh, that's great. That's an I, awesome story. Yeah, yeah. And I suddenly realized that, oh, no, he thinks I'm applying for a job. And then I realized I wanted that job because <laughs> I didn't want this one. And you're on the phone with a guy and you're halfway through the interview. Exactly. So I, I went over to his house. I kind of fessed up and said, look, you know, I've got physical skills. I'm, I can do basic acrobatics and things, but, you know, I'm not a dancer. And he said, do you think you could become one in the next eight weeks? Uh, I was like, yeah, sure. Um, and so eight weeks later, I was running a dance group. I hired people who could dance and hid behind them, basically. Sounds and like an excellent plan, right? I, I was on a stage in Kuala Lumpur in a professional circus <laughs> as a dancer. And then as I stayed out there, I learned other skills. I became a clown and a tightrope walker and all these other things. So I started to explore performance and, uh, and uh, I traveled with the circus and we had a great time. Um, but then I realized that what I loved most about all of this was when someone came into the, the circus, a new recruit, because you're always getting people rotating mm-hmm. and out through injury or they've got to go home. I loved the teaching of people, the skills that I'd acquired. That's what I enjoyed. So I thought, well, I can't do this forever. My body's going to end up giving out on me. Why don't I teach? Hmm. So I came back to the UK. I trained as a teacher for one year to top up my degree, moved to where I live now and for 10 years taught. And everything seemed to settle down. And my parents finally breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> like our, That was a long journey. Yeah, right? <laughs> our, our aberrant circus performing son has got a job. He's being, he's being sensible. Um, I was kept the martial arts up. And I got to the point where my martial arts instructor said to me, you now need to face real world aggression and violence. All of this kind of stuff that's happening yeah, in the, the dojo. It, is- it's fun but it's not going to prepare you in, for what you need. And I'd got a middle-class upbringing. I'd, I'd got into scraps as a kid, but not proper fights. Yeah, I would agree. I would say I'm in exactly the same boat. Like never actually been punched in the face by somebody who surprised me. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So, so I decided that I would take his advice and I signed up and trained as a door supervisor. And I worked the doors of the nightclubs in my city on a Friday and Saturday night. <laughs> so three weeks in, you get punched in the face by somebody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I faced all of that. So I was teacher by day and then bouncer by right. night. And I, I used to have to post a notice in the sixth form notice board saying don't come to this nightclub because i'm on the door and i know you're under 18 so they right. go somewhere else because that was a continual yeah saving the trouble right <laughs> and, the, and the school could have got really funny about that but i just don't think they ever really realized and i didn't often come in with kind of black eyes so um so i did that for two years um i was headhunted by uh, an organization that was offering training to people in high-risk jobs. I was already had the teaching skills. Mm. I was an, uh, a, an organized go-getter. The security industry in the UK at that time was starting to become licensed to make sure that the industry was cleaned up. And I became the training director for this startup company. That led me to going to Hereford, which is where British Special Forces are based. And I trained as a close protection officer in order to be more than just a school teacher as a bouncer. And that was great. It was lots of fun. And then uh, that gave me other opportunities. So I trained with SWAT in Toronto and, and various other things. So I had, this, I had this developing set of physical skills. Unfortunately, it didn't work out with the company I was working for. I had a very different kind of ethical set of standards than the, the man who was running that company. And I had this situation where I needed to walk away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a, financially, it was a disaster. I stepped away six months from before my marriage. I had a mortgage. I wasn't able to go straight back into teaching. So I hustled to do whatever I could. I, I did some close protection contracts. I was a barista in a cafe. <laughs> I marked exam scripts. I did whatever it took to get through it. That led me back into teaching. But now I'm suddenly my teaching CV looks really strange because it's circus performer, <laughs> teacher, bouncer, <laughs> bouncer, close protection officer, teacher, you know, and 
I settled down again and my parents had another sigh of relief, like, okay, that's out of his system. Now he can be a teacher again and hopefully see out his career. And it was going along quite nicely, <laughs> but all of that stuff had given me this kind of itchy foot. I, I, I wanted to have more than just my classroom experience. And I felt that that was enriching what I was doing with the kids. So I still had contacts with the special forces guys. I was never in special forces. I just worked parallel with them at times. And one of them approached and said, look, we can give you the opportunity to train as a, as a wilderness survival instructor. It's a one year course. We love to put you through it. It's going to be physically challenging. You'll need right. school's permission to do this because every three months you're going to have to be with us in the field for four days yeah. and we will give you everything you need to skill up and then you can use it as you see fit. I thought that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Great opportunity. It took me almost four years, not, not the one year they promised because <laughs> I was awful. Um, <laughs> Day two, they're like, all right, we, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I very, I very nearly quit and it was only pride that kept me going really. Um, there were uh, 15 people in the original cohort and three of us passed and everybody else either quit or got injured or got mm. binned. It was an amazing journey. Halfway through that, I tore a cartilage in one of my knees, jumping across a ditch with a heavy backpack on. So I had, that's why it took four years for one of the years I was rehabbing. And, uh, alongside that, I, Dan and I, Dan Edwards, Parkour Generation CEO, and I have been long-term friends. And so I was always on the periphery of the PK Gen movement and that, that training helped me rehabilitate as well because of the multiplanar movement. Right. And, uh, it was during all of that, that the thrown in project evolved. So I was, my knee was starting to recover, but I couldn't go back fully into the, the, uh, the wilderness, wilderness survival right? training. Dan's 40th birthday happened. And uh, we had decided I was placed in charge of the organization of the events for Dan's birthday. <laughs> you were the funeral director. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Basically, if you take someone like Dan Edwards and me and our friendship group and put us in a very big room, or in this case, a mansion State, in Nottingham right? <laughs> for a weekend, um, weird things happen. Um, <laughs> so in this case we all dressed up as various characters we had two teams and we went head to head in what we called the warrior games and that involved a whole bunch of things like tug of war and uh wrestling games and sumo wrestling and and one of the events which i created was a knife throwing event I'd never thrown a knife in my life. I built a target. I bought three throwing knives. I didn't get any practice because I didn't want to cheat right. and have an advantage. Showed up on the day and thought, okay, well, I'm at least going to be middle of the field here. I've got good hand-eye coordination. I've got a background in martial arts. Surely I'm going to ace this. And I was bloody awful. Um, I sucked. And I don't like sucking at things. You know? <laughs> Were you middle of the pack, though? I, no, yeah. not even close. <laughs> oh, wow. No, no. I was beaten by computer programmers. And, you know, there was... <laughs> oh! Yeah, no, I sucked. Oh, right in the ego. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I was awful. Um, and so as that weekend went on, I was kind of, I went out and I'd keep throwing a bit and go, there's got to be a way to get better at this. And, <laughs> well, there is, but yeah. it's, guess what? <laughs> and, and as so often has happened on my journey, I, I've, you know, I, I found that there's this weird serendipity that occurs. If you've got a passion for something and it, the universe seems to call back to mm -hmm. you and go, okay, I'll meet you halfway on this. So I Googled knife throwing world championship thinking, is, does even such a thing exist? Well, not only did it exist, but the European championships were happening in the UK that year, a month later. <laughs> okay. So I was like, okay, well, I can go along. I can watch. I can meet these right. guys and see what they're doing. So I, I called up and said, I'd really like to come along to the event. You can only come along if you're a competitor. What okay. do I have to do to enter? <laughs> yeah. So what do I, uh, what standard do I need to meet? Oh, you don't need to be any particular standard. Just sign up. You'll enjoy it. It'll be sign fun. up and pay 10 pounds. You're in. Right. <laughs> have you got throwing knives? I have. You're in. Yeah. Okay. So, so a month later I find myself, 
in a field with hundreds of other competitors from all over Europe and some from the States as well, throwing knives. And that became the thrown in project. So I, I decided like, okay, to get good at this, these guys are amazing and they are com committed athletes in their practice. So I decided to set myself a target to make it transparent, to uh, put it out in the world um, so that I couldn't renee on it. Right. And so I made the thrown in project, which was I will throw for 1000 days and uh, attain some kind of world. Get in the rankings. Um, and I created the podcast because it gave me an opportunity to get in front of people who were better than me and pick their brains. And also nothing like that existed for the throwing community. So, so that was the thrown in project. I'm, I'm mindful that bless you. If you're listening to this, it, it must be, it must feel like just a, a brain dump of weirdness. <laughs> my, my life doesn't really make sense. Well, in I'm, a linear I have fashion. Threads. I'm pulling. I'm just waiting for you to finish. <laughs> I'm, I'm not like waiting on, impatiently. I'm just waiting. Keep going. <laughs> okay. All right. So I, uh, I, I did reasonably well. I won some UK titles. I competed internationally at the European championships and, and ranked there. And I'd love to give you this happy ever after story that it all worked beautifully. And I stood on that podium <laughs> on day 999. No. No. It, didn't, it didn't happen. Uh, I ended up two, there were a couple of barriers. One was that I got physically injured and that was because I wasn't training intelligently. I was, as always, I throw myself in earnest into what I was doing and I was throwing a minimum of a thousand throws a day, which was two hours of practice per day. And because I was only throwing on one side of my body and the torque and the twist that's involved in that, I created a repetitive strain injury, a spinal right. injury that became severe enough that after 10, 15 minutes of throwing, I, I had to sit down and stretch. I, I was in quite a lot of pain and I tried switching my stance. I tried throwing with the other hand as well. And it, I never, yeah, yeah. I, I'm still actually managing that injury now. It's getting much better, but that was almost two years ago now. And, uh, so that was a pain. And then also, uh, financially, uh, I'm a school teacher. We've got a son. I'm the only breadwinner in the family. Teachers aren't paid very well. And I just ended up realizing that unless I'd crowdsourced or fundraised in some way, I wasn't any, going to be able to get to Austin, Texas, where the world championships happened. So I decided to draw a line under that. Um, and the, the bad news about that is that that was a huge dent to my ego mm. and my pride. But the good news is it created the space for me to go into the Hero Forge project. Right. So the Hero Forge project, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. You, do, the book came first. Yeah. So, so, the background to that was Dan, again, it's Dan Edwards fault. Basically most of the, <laughs> that's pretty much, that's yeah, most the of the screw ups in my life and the, these massive projects are because Dan stuck his oar in, in some way. I love that British expression. I need to pack that into stick my, an oar? yeah, stuck his oar in. Yeah, it's, like, yeah, like, yeah. it's like, it's the perfect metaphor. Things <laughs> we were going great. It was going straight. And then you stuck your oar in. <laughs> exactly. So Dan was invited as a guest speaker to uh, the hero round table mm -hmm. run by Matt Langdon. It's a great event it happens a couple of, well now more than a couple of times a year in different parts of the world. They were coming to the UK and Matt had asked Dan, do you, do you know anybody who right. might be able to contribute to this? And given the weirdness of my journey and the fact that Dan and I often sit down and talk philosophy and all kinds of things, he put me forward. And I didn't know what I had to say about heroism. Like, I have no idea. What, what do you want me to talk about? And Dan said, well, you're going to have to figure that out. Just go away and put. So the Hero Forge, the book, was a book I wrote to figure out what I wanted to say on that stage in a five to 10 minute talk. Now it became far more than that, but that was the impetus. Like I need to write to figure out what I have to say. It came at a really poignant point in my life in that I'd become a dad 
And I became a dad quite late. So I was 44. When my dad had me, he was 26. And my father was dying of cancer. And so it came at this point where I realized that the chances are that I won't be able to mentor my son all the way through adulthood in the way that my father had with me because I started later and who knows how, how short your life is, you know, things change. So I started thinking what would be the legacy, the message that I'd want to leave Kit, my son on what it is to be a good man and to lead, leave a good life uh, and to make a difference. And so the hero forge became the instruction manual that I'd want to leave to my son of here's what I've figured out, not necessarily that I embody or live, but what I think are some of the answers to living a life where you are able to look back and go, I'm comfortable with that. Life well lived. Exactly. Yeah. So, and heroism for me has always been a verb, not a noun. It's, it's a doing thing and it's, it's transitory. And so it was about how do you conduct yourself on this journey through life? I wrote the book. I wrote what I had to say. And then I went along and delivered this talk at the Barbican in London, which we're not too far away from there now, actually. (laughs) Isn't that strange? Yeah, we've come full circle. And it went down well. And then I stayed in touch with Matt. And I realized that the most useful thing, or the thing I enjoyed most about that journey was actually meeting other people who I talked to about (laughs) this. And they were remarkable people. And I thought, well, maybe this is the could be the beginning of an ongoing conversation rather than the end of it. So the podcast emerged out of that. And yeah, I, I, I never intended it to be something that went on forever. It was going to go on for as long as the energy was there. And I felt that I had something of value to add to it. And I interviewed just remarkable people. And, and it was a, as you say, it was a, I didn't realize that the pace I was setting was by most people's standards, unrealistic. It was just once a week I committed to put something out. It had to happen in the evenings and weekends. And usually the people I was talking to were in different time zones uh, so all the production of that was all a one man team, the social media, everything I did myself. And, uh, yeah, so I, I came to the natural end at that point. I, I went out with Dan again. We both presented at a round table in uh, San Francisco, uh, which was April last year, I think. I believe so. I seriously considered getting a plane ticket. I was uh, like, oh, but I was really busy in April. <laughs> it, it was, it was wonderful. And, and I, I got to meet Phil Zimbardo and, um, it just, incredible people. We had a wonderful time. I went to Alcatraz Mm -hmm. and, you know, I had a couple of days of being able to play there as well. And when I came back, I just had this feeling like, I think I'm probably done on this now. I think Mm -hmm. what I had to say and what I had to contribute. And what you had to figure out for yourself. What I had to figure out had been done and I needed to release space for whatever the next thing is. I'd I'd rather do one thing well than two things badly. Mm -hmm. And so I basically said to Matt, you know, I think this is me. Um, You know, you guys I'm very happy to still be involved peripherally and I can come in and, and I'll be very happy to say yeah. what's going on in my life right Tap now. Me but, when you have things that you think I should be doing. But yeah. yeah but the, the energy seems to have shifted. So we're going to call it a day. And, and that's what happened. So it was, it was a wonderful year, year and a half's journey. I loved it. And it's informed how I travel now. So yeah, that was the hero forge. One of the first things that strikes me, there's a lot about that journey that's really interesting and, and amazing. And, um, you know, lessons can be drawn in multiple places. But the first thing that I see is um, self-efficacy. So I don't want to like over stereotype, but like that first run as the kid to solve the problem that mm-hmm. you were just sick and tired of. Mm-hmm. Um, I see the same theme over and over, not not the sick the kid. I don't want to get punched. But I, I see <laughs> the same theme over and over of, okay, what? 
this is, how can I possibly suck this bad? And then off we go on that particular thing. But somehow in a healthy way, like you manage to rein it in. But like, I think sometimes I go way too far. And you seem to be able to rein that in. And I'm wondering, have you ever sat um, figuratively or literally and taken the time to think about how has my like, I don't want to say my skill of self-efficacy, but that's the only way I can think to put it. How has that skill changed over time? Like, do you, have you ever tried to actually intentionally deploy that? Or does it always seem like the journeys begin, you know, when there's like a tipping point of frustration or anger? Yeah. It's, it's not been, I don't think it's been purposeful or conscious. I think it's, yeah, it's been, I've always just thought, right, where's the energy and follow that energy, Mm -hmm. whether that energy comes from anger or frustration or passion or whatever. I, I think I, what I've got better at, if anything, over time is being a bit more kind to myself. Like mm-hmm. I, I was always my worst critic and, and I, I persuaded, I believed that that was in some way necessary in order to become very good at something. I had to hold myself accountable and be unforgiving and unrelentless. And in part, I think that was, that was informed by the mythology around martial arts training and that kind of austerity. So in, in Okinawan karate, which is my predominant form that I studied in, uh, in the early days, they have this idea of misogi, which is mm-hmm. translates as austere training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> if it didn't hurt, if I wasn't suffering, you weren't doing it right. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and that's still there to an extent, you know, I, 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 Dan's got this great distinction between a training session and a challenge. You know, if, if you're, if you don't know whether you can complete it, it's a challenge, but if you know that you can do this, it's not a challenge. It's just training. So I've always tried to, push the envelope and, and embrace challenges. So I, a, a couple of years back, I did uh, as many burpees as I could within six hours to raise money for charity. Um, so it was to raise money to have a well dug in the Congo for the pygmy peoples there who were suffering dysentery unnecessarily. And I didn't know how many I could do. And rendezvous had happened the week before, and I was a guest instructor there teaching self-defense. And I dislocated a finger whilst I was instructing. A, somebody just collided and my, I popped it back in. So it was it. It wasn't yeah, as bad as it could have been. Soft, soft tissue damage. But exactly. So, and I, and I knew I had 1,500 burpees to do in, in the six hours. I had no idea whether I could do that. It was just a nice round number. Um, and um, What does that divide out to in burpees? How many seconds per burpee is that? You know what? I'm, it, it wasn't. If you, if you do it that way, it doesn't look too onerous. It wasn't too bad. But the problem was that after the first two hours, I started cramping. And it was trying to trying to make sure that I could still stay, stay on volume whilst taking out the cramps. And it, with all of these things, if you do anything for volume after a certain point, for me, it was about the four hour point, your body goes, okay, you're not going to stop or I'll take the cramps away. Yeah, right. you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, are you not kidding? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you are going to do this. So it, it, I actually sped up in the last two hours, those middle two hours mm. sucked and I didn't make it. It's another example of something where I didn't achieve my objective. I think I came in at about 1350. Uh, I was shy of the, the 1500, right. but it was the not knowing whether I could complete it that attracted me to the project because you enter a different space. Uh, and for me, there's something really beautiful and graceful about being in that space where you are turning up like a, on a frontier going, let's just find out what happens. You know, I'm open to whatever might occur. So what I've got better at is I don't feel any shame now in not having made 1500 mm. i made 1350 by reaching beyond myself and if i hadn't gone in with the intention of 1500 i couldn't probably wouldn't have done the 1350 yeah so my efficacy has become more compassionate if anything that's that's probably the only change my my ambition is always still out of whack <laughs> I, I still aim way beyond what i'm actually capable of <laughs> 
Andy, I've been doing all the leading here. Is there something in particular that you'd like to share? Yeah, I'm, I'm mindful that a, a lot of what we've chatted about might not seem to be directly related to movement practice. I, I mean, think it's directly related <laughs> to self-efficacy, which is related to that's, movement. That's true. Um, but one of the things that in the last few years I've been involved in with um, Parkour Generations is I've, I've come in as a guest instructor for a number of the night missions that they run. So if people aren't familiar with what that entails, essentially a group of people who, who uh, are tracers of one description or another will come together usually a couple of hours before dusk and we take them out and they train through the night into the morning and they don't have an end stop that they know. It will just be sometime after dawn that they end. It's usually themed. So we've done Avengers themes where they had to find the various gems for Thanos' gauntlet. Mm-hmm. We've had um, themes around uh, apocalypse, and prisoners, right. exactly. It's a really good example of what I think is really important in a physical practice. And we've talked a bit about it, about the difference between challenge and training, which is this idea of hormesis or uh, exposing yourself to hermetic experiences. So a, a potentially toxic influence to which we respond by becoming stronger or more resilient. And I'm really fascinated with resilience. What makes one person resilient and another not and I think that probably comes back to my early experiences mm-hmm. as an asthmatic and and not being defined by our conditions. I think the body and the mind are far more plastic than we realize and that we can transform ourselves through intentionality. So the night missions have been really good fun. They also, as an instructor, they are interesting because, of course, you've got to be on point all the way through because as people get tired, their energies fluctuate, <clears throat> right. they're more likely to make mistakes. Thanks. And you want to make sure they get to the end of it and have a positive experience. And so you're trying to manage their energy whilst also having a metacognitive awareness of where you are in that process. And we run them on a Friday night. So I've just finished a full teaching week. I'm up at five every morning and then doing my training, then teaching, then jumping on a train to London and then running a night mission. So that's been a really good example more recently of bringing all of these strands from survival instructor training and close protection and situational awareness and bringing it all together in a, in a physical training culture to be able to serve that community. And, and I've loved it. It's really good fun. Looking back at all of the different components of your journey, and then especially just talking about um, the night missions, I'm wondering uh, if you'd be willing to share something that you're currently struggling with. Yeah, I'm always struggling with multiple things. <laughs> it's, yeah, um, objective honesty, check mark. You know, so yeah, there's a there's a few things at the moment. So uh, one of them is so I'm 50 this year. And this Congratulations. is, thank you very much. I survived that far. And so I, I'm, I'm very much aware that my body is doing different things than it did when I was in my twenties and I'm still demanding of it, what I mm. think I should be able to do. Um, and so I'm trying to negotiate this relationship where I'm aware that I need to be respectful of the fact that I'm getting older, but also not copping out mm-hmm. and, and saying, Oh, well, I'm older now. Therefore I shouldn't hold myself accountable. <laughs> my lawn, right? yeah. <laughs> so, so managing that and, and, um, realizing how the consequence of being high energy, passionate, high driving the way I am is that sometimes I can be neglectful of those fundamental practices like sleep management and hydration Mm -hmm. and diet and, and letting those things slip. And just, I've, I've been blessed with a being apart from the asthma, being a fairly resilient human being, my body can take a fair bit of punishment. I can still look like I'm functioning but it's look like I'm functioning. <laughs> um, and so I've, I've noticed certainly since becoming a dad as well, that, uh, I have placed my own health and well being secondary, but still been required to look like everything's good. 
and I've been like that classic swan, you know, like floating, but I'm paddling like hell underneath to just mm. keep, keep up. So what I've been, the struggle recently has been owning that and recognizing that I need to reinvest in my longer term health and my physical movement as part of that. Because, because what I've tended to do is, so, so the, the burpee challenge is right. a good example. I jump in with both feet into something that's physically very demanding. But if I aren't, if I'm not putting time into those foundational practices that allow me to be healthy in my everyday life, what happens is that that incurs micro injuries and fatigue from which I don't recover necessarily. So it's, so it's, it's not a big dramatic one. It's more a case of actually needing to honor the fact that my body needs restoration time. Do you have any strategies that you've developed to help you, you know, like how do you, the, the, people talk about a good angel and a bad angel. Do yeah. you have strategies to like when the, when the bad angel says, let's do a thousand burpees and yeah, the, the yeah, good yeah. angel is like, um, let's go for a walk. You know, like <laughs> how do you, do you have strategies to sort of to help you make decisions or rubrics or. Yeah. I'm, as always with these things, the, the key is not what we know, but what we apply. Right. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I teach mindfulness to the kids. I, I teach mindfulness strategies. I, have uh, a, a whole hinterland. I, I'm a qualified instructor in the advantage uh, oxygen advantage method, which is a bit like Wim Hof's method okay. um, in terms of breath management in order to uh, create, you know, a, a good temperature control, health, yeah, and, and, and blood flow. Yeah, and and you know, there's evidence now about epigenetics as well coming to bear. You know, so I, I have all of these things. The challenge is actually applying them. So what I do is I, I have to put things on autopilot. I'm a creature of habit, so I. Every other day, I start my day with the sauna and steam room and do breath work in the sauna and steam room. I do burpees in the sauna as well, which is highly recommended. Whoa. Works well. If you want to get, <laughs> that'll warm you up. <laughs> if you want to get a good sweat on that, that works. So I, yeah, I automate things. I do that. I have a heart rate variability mm-hmm. monitor and I will do a committed practice every morning and every afternoon before I go home. So whatever stress I've accumulated by the day, I don't then dump on my family. I decompress before I go home. In terms of diet, I still, I, I yo-yo on that. I've got a really sweet tooth and i'm busy and sometimes you know there are biscuits and yeah i just find i I wolf a couple of those down with the coffee and that's you know (laughs) there are no biscuits or well there's a scary old bag of crisps in the airbnb that i am not touching but there are no biscuits (laughs) no crisps no cookies there's no candy in this flat when i got here i went to the market the refrigerator is full of veggies and i'm like it's just me i don't know like no no because i'm I'm the same way like if i have if i have access to food that i shouldn't eat um i know what my demon want i have a couple demons but i know one of them is food and i just like the only way they put have to put that on autopilot yeah yeah and 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 i guess that going back to the angel and the devil on the shoulder weirdly one of the things that keeps me most accountable is the fact that I work with young people every day because mm. they have the most dialed in BS detectors you're ever going to come across, <laughs> you know? So, and, and they know of what I've done and what I claim to stand for and what I represent. So if I don't seem to be walking my talk, they will call me out. So they, in some ways, weirdly, they are my perfect coaches because I walk, I have to walk the talk because one, I think, if I don't, they'll call me out. But also I want to be the kind of person that I advocate for them. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is a really, you. yeah, it's a really useful. And also having a son, I've got a, a seven year old little boy who um, looks to me and will want me to still be around in the long term. So as long as I can be and be healthy and, and functioning, I know that these little incremental choices I make daily will dictate my, my um, destiny and my future. Mm-hmm. So I, I try and keep that as, as, as something that keeps me in checks and balances. Andy, I also want to take the opportunity to ask you if there's any books that you would recommend that people read, or maybe even are there any books that you normally recommend or give to people? Yeah. Uh, 
so toughy as an English teacher. I mean, honestly, people should read your book. Your book is really good. Thank you. But in addition to that one. Yeah, it's, it's really tricky because, so I'm going to mention a couple of books that you wouldn't probably expect from a, an English teacher in that they are not great works of literature, mm-hmm. but they, they were really key things that shaped me growing up. Um, one of them's a, a very short parable by Richard Bach called Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And it's a story about a seagull that decides that it doesn't want to fly with the flock and just chase fish all the time. It actually wants to master aerodynamic flying. Mm. And therefore it stepped away from the flock and gets all of the attack and criticism from the flock for being different. And it's a beautiful book and it's really simple, but it's a a children's storybook essentially. But everything you need to know about charting your own course is in there. there. The other one is Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman, which again, I read in my teens uh, and his his other books since I don't think have been anywhere near as good. But that first book, which is a story about a young gymnastics scholar in America who goes to a gas station in the middle of the night and comes across this weird pump attendant called Socrates, who ends up becoming a mentor and teaches him. It's very much in the same style as Carlos Castaneda mm-hmm. um, and Don Juan and these ideas. It's, it's kind of a pseudo spiritual book. But again, the philosophy inside of that book is wonderful. And it definitely helped shape the direction I traveled in from my teens into adulthood. They're, they're two formative books. And then if you've got any time left, anything um, about Bruce Lee will be inspiring and useful. The, the other thing I'd, I'd share about selecting books and so forth is there's more books to read than days in our lives remaining and Amen. more good books. <laughs> Amen. Um, so the th- thing I always say to my students is if you pick a book up and in, in two chapters, you're not, you're not hooked, dump it because there are more books waiting for you. Uh, and I'm somebody who feels that it doesn't matter what your profession or what your passion or direction in investing some time and energy and study skills will pay dividends. So I'm, uh, I'm really interested in how we learn efficiently. So memory techniques and reading strategies and note-taking and time management, all those things. If you put 10 hours of study into something like that, the hours that you will save, the days you will save down the road, and the, the efficiency with which you would acquire new skills and new knowledge will be exponentially paid for itself. Mm-hmm. So definitely explore that. And it's, it's more available now than ever before with YouTube. And you don't even have to pay a lot of money. You know, you can find all this stuff for free. But if you learn how to learn, and if you follow your passion, then you'll be surprised at just how much you can achieve in a short period of time. As I say all the time, I love to collect stories because the stories that people choose and how they tell them, that gives you a deep insight into their personality. So Andy, is there a story that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, there is. And and it is it's something which connects to physical culture and movement and, and also uh, some of the themes that have come up already. So this story is something that occurred right at the end of my days as a circus performer. So I ran away from the circus. <laughs> <laughs> Not, not to it. Um, the guys we were working for uh, basically were connected to, it turns out, to some of the local organized crime oh, right. in Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> and uh, we got wind that you know it, our visas might be revoked and we might find ourselves in prison. <laughs> so I took that opportunity to get hold of my passport and, right. and leg it to the east coast of Exit Malaysia. Left. 
Um, and I'd already decided that I was going to be a teacher at this point. And so I only had a couple of months to go anyway. So myself and one of the other uh, guys, a great guy called Keith, uh, found ourselves in Terramanganu on the east coast of Malaysia. We chartered a small um, speedboat to a place called Tioman, which is an island paradise. It's gorgeous. It's the inspiration for the musical South Pacific. Mm-hmm. It is glorious. And we spent two weeks just hanging out on the beach, barbecuing fish that we'd caught. I mean, it was just idyllic. Waterfalls. And on the last day, we thought, you know what? The locals have been so amazing. Why don't we do a show for them? You know, we've got circus skills. Why don't we do something? So Keith could do some juggling and I did a bit of close up magic. And, and one of the things that I'd had with me was this set of fake escapology um, chains. So it was, a, it, it looked like you were chained with your wrists separated by a bar. You couldn't possibly undo them, right. but it was just a very simple act of bringing your wrist into a certain position you could get out. It was, it was, 10 seconds work. So we thought, okay, why don't we, as, as the dramatic end to our performance, why don't we go down the pier? <laughs> chain my arm. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm going to oh, get no. chained up. I'm going to have my legs tied together, bag over my head. Keith's going to read something dramatic from Joseph Comrade, and then he's going to push me into the <laughs> South China Sea with the monsoon <laughs> brewing. Right. And, you know, torchlight. It'll be amazing. So that's what we did. Okay. So we did a little rehearsal um, in the afternoon. And with all of that, I could escape in 30, 35 seconds, not a problem. And then I actually was able to um, swim up underneath the pier and appear behind them. So they'd all be looking into the dark water. Right. Like, Where is he? And then what are you all looking at? Right? Yeah, yeah. And I'd appear behind them. This like, is terrific for the show. stagecraft. This it, is right. This was the plan. So everything's going to, you know, the audience is great and they've all taken me down. The, so the first mistake was that Keith got a bit excited and he pushed me a little sooner than I'd anticipated. Uh-huh. And I hadn't therefore got a full breath. I, sort of, I gasped as, we, as I hit the water. But the biggest mistake was we'd rehearsed at high tide and it was now low tide. Oops. And so instead of gently floating to the bottom, I thumped the bottom of the water quite hard and an urchin spine stuck right into my backside Ooh. and snapped off. So I had a, like basically a small dagger in my ass and with, your with my hands tied my legs tied with a bag over my head at night in the south china sea so i let all the air out of my lungs because i'm just shocked yeah. and then realized i had to do this escape and so i i did obviously because i'm here um I, I made the escape and i came spluttering to the surface and they all thought oh very dramatic you're yeah, right. very impressive it really looked like you were struggling there and i can no one ever knew that the end of that night was with keith with a pair of tweezers <laughs> trying to take this urchin spine out of my backside <laughs> <laughs> it's the closest to death I've probably come as, as uh, in terms of physical. The lesson is prepare. Preparation is everything. My dad used to have this phrase, which was the seven P's proper preparation and planning prevents a piss poor performance. And uh, that was, that was a case in point. Forgot about the tide. <laughs> and of course the final question, three words to describe your practice. Okay. So I'm going to, work on the assumption that my practice is defined by more than my physical movement. So it's my uh, philosophy or approach in general. So I have a tattoo uh, on my uh, right arm Mm -hmm. and at the top, it's the date of my marriage. Mm -hmm. And at the bottom, it's the date of my son's birth. Mm -hmm. And in between there are three phrases and it's basically the summation of my philosophy in life. It's hard to read because it's in Elvish. Um, But essentially it says, uh, be here and now uh, speak softly or uh, tread softly, speak kindly. So of those three, I think be here now would be my philosophy. Thank you very much, Andy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been great fun.
This was episode 60. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 60. There's more to the Movers Mindset Project than just this podcast. Visit our website for more free content, to join our email list, or to read about how you can support this project. And I'll leave you with a final thought from Dag Hammerschgold. You cannot play with the animal in you without becoming wholly animal. Play with falsehood without forfeiting your right to truth. Play with cruelty without losing your sensitivity of mind. He who wants to keep his garden tidy does not reserve a plot for weeds. Thanks for listening.